You're listening to the podcast version of Intrigue Explained, the weekly show where two former Australian diplomats and their friends break down the biggest stories in international news in a way that hopefully entertains and resonates with you. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode, the second in 2023 of Intrigue Explained. My name is Dimitri Gosbinski from Explain Trade, and with me is John Fowler. John, how are you? Doing well, doing well. It's rainy and, and pretty miserable here in Chicago, but it's always a ray of sunshine to see you, Dimitri. <laughs> Sorry, I tried to get through that. Yeah, you, you, yeah it's you, my partner, my parents, no one has ever successfully finished that sentence without cracking up. No, I'm good. I'm glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Our, our, our average of not insulting each other for more than six seconds of this show has yet to be breached. Exactly. So for those who, for those who are joining us for the first time, Intrigue Explained is a show where John and I, and in the future, our friends, try to break down some of the issues in geopolitics from the last week that you may have missed or where we as, as former diplomats and people who spend a lot of time thinking about international relations, feel like maybe we can add something for your own thinking. A lot of this is drawn from a newsletter that John and International Intrigue produce every week and or every day, in fact, and we strongly encourage you to subscribe. John, a few words on, on what you folks are trying to do over there. Yeah, I'll keep it, keep it short. It's a daily newsletter rounding up you know, what we think are the biggest geopolitical global stories in the world. The idea is to kind of make foreign policy, geopolitics, global affairs, trade, these kinds of topics. The idea to make those kinds of topics accessible to people who don't spend their days thinking about it and write them and, and communicate it in a way that, you know, is actionable for folks who want to know, need to know about this kind of stuff, but don't have time to read through, you know, dense, dense tomes from, from folks like, you know, academics and, and practitioners. Uh, and this show is sort of our halfway house, I suppose, between the quick hit you right. get from international intrigue every mo morning and those kind of deep down, deep dive foreign policy, like set aside half a day to read articles where we're trying to, we're trying to experiment and we're trying to feed you some of that content. As always with any YouTube show, I'm going to put on my, my Gen Z YouTuber hat and encourage you to like, comment and subscribe to the channel. We really love your feedback. And I think on this show, we're going to make enough to get to at least one of the questions we've received on previous episodes. But for now, today's show, we, got, we have a main story this episode where we'd really like to deep dive into the Wagner Group, the Russian private military company that, that is, on the one hand, dominating the news on the Ukraine war side, but is sort of under the radar, uh, increasingly expanding its footprint and by extension, Russia's footprint in Africa. So John and I are going to come at that from, from sort of two sides and really talk through some of the implications of that, PMNCs in general, and what it all might mean for geopolitics. And before that, we're going to briefly touch on three stories from international intrigue in the last week that we thought are worth your following or worth bringing to your attention. The Hong Kong security trials have commenced for those arrested in 2020. Iran has indicated that it will pardon and commute the sentences of thousands of protesters with a lot of asterisks and caveats around exactly who is getting pardoned and, and why, under what conditions. And finally, just because we, we really, we, we know what stories are sexy, we're going to talk about global taxation. And the recent OECD ruling on global minimum corporate taxes and specifically how the U.S. has to implement them. I swear to God, it's important. Like, I mean, I'm bored just, yeah. just between that. I'm going to need your help on that one. Listen, guys, like corporations should probably be paying tax somewhere. And this is sort of to do that. And how it interacts with all of these things is vitally important. We may have to touch ourselves repeatedly in the legs as we explain that. But we swear to God, it's worth your following. And we will do our best to make it accessible. But before we get to those stories, there have been, there have been really two, two major developments we want to really briefly touch on. John, do you want to say a few words about the, the earthquake? Yeah, I, 
well, covering writing a newsletter every day on on geopolitics, it's always difficult to know how to deal with these these kinds of stories because there's not a lot to add, meaningfully add in the moment from a you know a global politics kind of perspective. But you know we've, we're seeing nearly twenty thousand dead in Turkey and Syria. Aid is having a real problem getting into Syria because the earthquake destroyed the the UN's aid routes into Syria. You know I think. The recovery in Turkey is a little bit better, but it's still, you know, people are still buried under rubble. We're outside that 72-hour window where people are likely to be saved. So, I mean, there's no, there's no way really to talk about the earthquake that hit hit those two countries on what's Monday morning, was it, I think? There's no way to talk about it without just kind of sort of just being a bit shocked about the, like contemplating the horrific nature of, of what it would be like to live through that. We've had a few people reach out to the newsletter and say they've got friends in the area affected by it. And, that, you know, to, the, there's a sense in Turkey that it's kind of all hands on deck to, to help out. And then obviously against the backdrop of the last 10 years in Syria and the, the brutal civil war there, it's hard to imagine something the Syrian people needed less than a devastating series of earthquakes that's kind of reduced the country to rubble. So yeah, there's not much more to add than that. Yeah, I mean... There are, there are geopolitical angles to all of this. The outsized role of Israel in delivering aid to Turkey has implications. The interaction of the sanctions regime and the regional geopolitics with aid to Syria, all of that is there. But very frankly, dissecting that kind of thing while bodies and hopefully survivors are still being pulled from the rubble just feels in incredibly bad taste. And none of it, all of mm. these things are worth mulling in the medium but i think for now exactly. all we can do is is sort of express sympathy and hope for the best and hope to the extent that aid can make it through that it does to the maximum extent possible on in far less less tragic news those who watched last week's show know john and i were deeply personally invested in one chinese spy balloon uh, and its epic journey across the U.S. sky, that balloon has been shot down. And if it didn't make for such awful viewing, we do a moment of silence. I, ne I need you to read the, I need you to read the pun you've written down in our preparatory notes that I'm reading right in front of me, because he is brilliant. You have to read it. You can't skip over it. So I've written balloon. We hardly knew she, and I'm not proud of it. And I, I don't, I, I mean, brilliant. I'm watching the current view account and watching it like, I'm imagining it's about to plummet into the negative somehow as people not only tune out, but also actively block. But I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. But I mean, the, the balloon has been destroyed. It did not lead to World War Three. It didn't. The Blinken visit to China has been indefinitely postponed. But listening to administrative, to administration officials, they're saying they will reschedule it at some point. So they haven't sort of, it hasn't permanently damaged relations. There's all sorts of speculation about, you know, was this, was this a deliberate attempt to sabotage the visit? Was it a, you know, speculation this was rogue elements trying to sour relations ahead of the visit? John, as someone who, who lived and worked in China for quite some time, do you have any kind of takes on this? Yeah, I, I mean, a, cu a couple of things spring to mind. One, you know, there are fairly credible reports and particularly coming out of the Pentagon that this is a pattern of behavior for China. They, they've found a way of floating balloons over countries to map, you know, military installations and other sensitive things. So it's not like this is a rare occurrence. There were, you know, reports, I don't know how accurate they are, that it happened a few times during Trump's administration, a couple of times previously in Biden's administration. It's just the first time that it's kind of hit the mainstream media like this. Um, so I don't think there's anything new here. I, I was perplexed by some tapes from folks saying this doesn't matter. I was like, oh, it's a massive over... It, it may well be an overreaction from the US, but I think that's not the same as saying it doesn't matter. I, I think having what is clearly an adversarial country float balloons designed to spy on, you know, various things and intercept communications is like, it's a, it's a thing that you shouldn't be thrilled about. So, you know, I, not to... It, in any way get into any domestic politics, but it feels like Biden handled it about right. You know, kind of shot it, made sure no one was hurt by it, you know, assessed the, assessed the intelligence threat, that kind of stuff. I thought it was particularly interesting that the Chinese had the nerve to apologize for their balloon blowing off course and then say, you know, threaten to sue the, the Americans for <laughs> shooting it down. But, you know, we live in strange times, so I'm, I'm actually not that surprised by it. And then I guess 
the, the only other thing to to note, well, two other things to note. One, you mentioned it. I think it's super important that both sides try and take the heat out of the issue. That means like not briefing the media too much, not kind of, which is always difficult in America because politicians aren't necessarily controlled by the State Department. But, you know, try to really take the heat out of the issue, get Blinken to China ASAP, you know, as soon as the kind of the, the issue has died down because it is an insanely stupid way to start World War Three, have a, a balloon, a dirigible, if, if I may, floating above the US taking photos. And then the last thing I'll mention is that I, if anyone didn't catch the SNL, the Saturday Night Live, Bowen Yang's take on <laughs> when he became the balloon and impersonated the balloon, it's well worth your watching. Plenty of lols. I, I, mean, I will add, I mean, firstly, I think it, espionage generally and spying is this insane thing in international relations where simultaneously everyone recognizes that we are all doing it all of the time. At the same time, the part of the dance of diplomacy is that you are supposed to pretend you are not, and you are supposed to be pretend you are shocked, shocked gambling is going on in this establishment every mm -hmm. time you see it. On the other hand, I think like it is worth taking a half step back and going, yes, it's like absurd and funny because it's a balloon, but this thing's like the size of three school buses. If a drone the size of three school buses was hovering above the continental United States in U.S. space, yeah. like if it was anything but a balloon, we, if it was a plane, if it was a drone, I think we wouldn't be laughing quite as hard every time we talk about it. So like, yes, it feels like an overreaction, but also like only because balloons are just inherently kind of silly. But if you, if you take, if you take the method of propulsion out of it, it's, you kind of, you understand why, why governments have to take it a little bit seriously, because it's a giant hunk of metal in the sky, photographing your stuff without your permission. So, yeah. so that, I mean, that is, that is all we can milk from the balloon story. I am Until hoping, next week. Yeah, I'm hoping China keeps sending balloons so they just generate content for us. We can do 10 minutes on this every week. But probably, probably best that they don't. We should, our first kind of okay. quick story, set us up the trials are beginning in Hong Kong. Yeah. So this is something we covered recently in the newsletter. It's this Monday, the trials of the, what they're calling the Hong Kong 47, which is what a group of 47 academics, students, protesters, activists, you know, civil society folks who are pro-democracy, the trials, their trials began on Monday. So very, very brief background, obviously. In 2019 and 20, China passed these national security laws in, in Hong Kong, which really clamped down on Hong Kong's political autonomy. And there were huge waves. I don't know if people remember the waves of protests, pro-democracy protests sort of before that and, and during that period. These, these laws were designed to crack down on that and to really narrow the scope for political expression in Hong Kong. These 47 folks were kind of seen as the most intransigent pro-democracy activists by the Chinese government. They've been in prison for a little while now, maybe, uh, don't quote me on this, but about 18 months and their trial begins. Now, a bunch of them have pled guilty, including Joshua Wong, who is the one that, you know, I think casual observers might recognize if they saw a photo. He's young, he's, he's you know, very, very eloquent kind of guy. He's pled guilty and a bunch of the others have, have pled guilty as well. I think from memory, 16 of them are actually going on trial. I don't think anyone's going to be surprised to learn that they're, that the result is almost certainly preordained. But the, the, the rub of this is that there are some serious penalties facing life in prison if they're found guilty. So yeah, I mean, the broader context here is Hong Kong is continuing to slip away from its more liberal democratic kind of position as it was a, as a British colony. And then after the handover, and this is just kind of directionally the same, the slide into the mainland Chinese system. Yeah, I mean, not not a huge amount to, to add there. The national security law introduces what in the US is I think called mandatory minimum sentencing. So the judges cannot give these people under three years, I believe is the, the minimum sentence. So there, there isn't even a lot of scope for kind of judicial leniency in that regard. It's also worth noting that the way that the national security law was initially sold was it was meant to kind of it was meant to clamp down on people firebombing property. What these 47 stand accused of is organizing unofficial pre-election primaries in an attempt to basically stack the legislative election 
in such a way as to block the budget, I believe, which because of the structure of Hong Kong's kind of laws would have meant that the legislative session, I think, had to come to an end and the, and the government would have had to effectively stand down. So it was, it was, it was a, the, these were not by and large violent protesters. They were attempting to use the, the power of democracy and what, what they stand accused of is kind of organizing unofficial primaries before an election. And this is what the national security laws. I think, I mean, you mentioned it there, like a lot of the, the, the sort of legal experts in the Hong Kong system say that those organizing activities were legal under the laws as they were written down. But, you know, having spent time in China, the law is merely a guide for what's going to happen and not predictive or in any way a set of rules to be taken literally. So, you know, I guess the last point to add is that I think a lot of the, the language before reunification, before Hong Kong kind of control of Hong Kong reverted to China was around allowing Hong Kong to retain at least part of its kind of more liberal system. I don't think anyone thought that they would continue to be as democratic as they were before, but I think everyone is looking at these trials as an indication of the direction of travel and, and whether and where is Hong Kong going, and it does not look correct. A lot of pressure has been applied on these, these people to testify against one another in order to, to weaken the democracy movement. It's not, it, it doesn't look like the, the democratic direction of travel is, is on the cards. Is that fair? Very fair. All right. Uh, move on to our, our next quick hit story. Also, also to do with a regime and also to do with, with protesters, but Iran and Arnolds. John, do you want to set us up? Yeah. So uh, obviously the background here is for the last few months, there've been some pretty, pretty serious protests in Iran, widespread nationwide protests over, I mean, people might remember it was kicked off by the death of a young girl at the hands of the Iranian police and really has been kind of nonstop since then. I think, I think some of the heat has come out of the protests, although it's hard to really get a sense for what's going on on the ground in Iran, obviously, because there's no media, no, well, no, no sort of free media anyway. But this story that we're talking about is that the, the Supreme leader of Iran recently said that he would pardon or reduce the sentences of tens of thousands to, and I, and I quoting there tens of thousands. So very, very opaque tens of thousands of prisoners, people who've been detained during the protests for protesting. I think there's about 20,000 people who've been detained nationwide since the beginning of the unrest late last year. And security forces have killed about 500 protesters, according to reports. Again, these numbers are, I guess, best estimates. They're certainly not likely to be, you know, bang on the money. But I think also something interesting here is that authorities have issued at least 22 death sentences and have killed a few people already for protesting. And I think there's probably a couple of hundred more in the pipeline with potential death penalties hanging over them. So there's this general, if you zoom out, there's this general sense of chaos and protests in Iran. The government, the, the regime there had cracked down very, very strongly initially by just arresting everybody and killing some people and at least threatening some other people with death penalties. Now that the, now the, now the, now the Ayatollah has said that he might pardon them or reduce their sentences, there might, there's a sense that it might be this idea of kind of making nice with the protesters, offering an olive branch to the protesters. I think some analysts have said that they do this a lot and then it takes a long time for anything to actually happen, but yeah, that's the context. I mean, I think it speaks to the, it speaks to the paucity of reporting and the specificity that one thing that's not entirely clear is to what extent these pardons will actually apply to the people protesting over the last couple of months. Iran, at any given time, incarcerates a substantial number of people on a range of charges. Often there's a collaboration with Western powers charge that is a fairly blanket kind of accusation you can level against just about anyone. And you don't, in the Iranian system, necessarily have to prove all that much. And so some reports are suggesting that actually the bulk, a lot of these pardons, may go to previously incarcerated people who fell afoul of those laws while leaving sort of not ringleaders, but particularly visible protesters will remain incarcerated. It doesn't apply to, they've already said it won't apply to dual nationals, and they've effectively reserved the right to say that any protester has had contact with foreign intelligence services 
or that is an agent of a foreign power or that caused property damage is not liable for one of these pardons. And in a very, very chaotic protest situation, what that effectively empowers the state to do is very selectively decide who gets one of these to slow roll and to effectively use these as both a carrot and a stick to, as you say, make nice with some of the protesters while indicating what kind of behavior will be, will continue to be very much punched by the state. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The the reaction in the recent context, Ron, geopolitically, there has been a debate in the EU about whether to redesignate the Iraqi Republican Guard, IRGC, a, I think it was a terrorist organization, which, which under kind of the, the laws of a lot of Western countries triggers a whole bunch of automatic sanctions. And there's a lot of debate in the EU about whether to do that. And the counter argument is that doing that will be seen as the death nail in the Iran nuclear deal of any hope of reviving the Iran nuclear deal. We don't really have chances there are. Yeah. We don't have time to unpack the Iran nuclear deal on today's episode. Let's, let's say that the, the odds are, the odds of that being revived, particularly energetically are not high at the moment anyway, but that is, uh, that is Mm. some of the context, but obviously, I mean, this is a, this is a regime that is both under some pressure, but still also very, very clearly in charge of its force organs and its ability to enforce incarceration and death sentences. Yeah. I just, I just Googled it too. It's the Iranian Revolutionary, Revolutionary Guard. Corps. I think the Repub- yeah. Republican guy, I think that's the, that's, that was Saddam Hussein's mob, wasn't it? I think back in the day. Anyway, but I, a, bunch of, a bunch of dudes who are known for brutality and, and nastiness. And, and it is a bunch of dudes. That's not just a slip of the tongue. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're not getting into the workism of uh, the pronouns of the, of, the, of, the, of the IR. I don't think they would thank us necessarily. No, exactly. Shall we move on? Death to John and Dimitri. But well done on your inclusive language. All right. That brings us to our most thrilling story of the week. The OECD sending its final guidance on the global minimal minimum tax treaty as its implementation concerns the United States. And boy, boy, but but the hands on the back of my head just adding up. John, do you want to say a few words? Or I... Yeah, I think I think what we'll do is we'll keep this one brief and just give people some some broader context. So, the OECD is the organization of countries that are generally seen as kind of westerny, richer countries. It's headquartered in Paris. I think the head of it now is a former Australian minister, right? Matthias Cormann. But it's generally this organization that I think is widely seen as sort of struggling for a bit of relevance, at least outside of diplomatic circles. You know, it's always had a role, but I think in light of like, you know, NATO and the UN and, and the sort of the big kind of multilateral organization based out of Europe, the OECD is always sort of seem to non-expert as a little bit like, what's the point? So and maybe you can push back on that in a second, maybe if I'm wrong, I'm wrong about that. But a couple of years ago, 2021, they were, the idea was that they were organizing amongst member states to impose a global minimum tax rate for corporations. It was a priority of the Biden administration to drive this. It's 15, well, the, the number that they've come up with is 15%. And, and the idea very loosely is to make sure that, you know, countries like Ireland is the one that sticks out to me immediately. The idea that there are countries that have lower tax rates in Ireland, I think it's 12 and a half percent in an effort to attract these global multinational, particularly tech corporations, but massive companies to offshore their operations in these tax havens. And, and, you know, for Ireland, they get the, the employees and all that kind of stuff. The idea behind having a global minimum tax rate is saying, we want to take away that incentive and have companies taxed where they do their business and where they make their revenue so that the, the share of tax goes to the country in which the operations are kind of in. So it's a, I guess it's like a more geographically fair distribution of where the economic activity happens is where the tax is levied so that you, know, you can support the employees and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, that's taking forever to do because this kind of stuff is contentious and bureaucratic. The US has driven the process, pitched the process, negotiated the process, but itself hasn't passed the laws that will be required to put it in place. And I, and I know that there's an official, a US official who was on the record saying, I just don't think the US will be able to persuade other countries to not apply a 15% tax regime to the US 
if it's not passed in the US itself. So there's this idea of just like disparate tax tax regimes around the world, trying to harmonize them, but then that has to go to national governments and have domestic legislation. That's going to be really hard. And I'm put myself to sleep. So over to you. Well, I mean, let me let me really punch in the, the sonorous. Yeah. Um, maybe just to add a little bit more detail, a little bit more context. So at the moment, something that corporations, giant corporations, Meta, Facebook can do is effectively establish themselves in a country like Ireland, has a lower corporate tax rate. And then regardless of where they actually do business in the world, so they make most, a lot of its money selling ads that are facing U.S. consumers to U.S. companies, right? You see an ad for Gillette on Facebook, Facebook makes some money. But it effectively moves all of that money through the way that it is corporately structured to Ireland and declares it as profit in Ireland. So that on paper, it's not making money anywhere but Ireland because Ireland has this lower tax rate. That is considered unfair and unjust for a bunch of reasons. It feels denying tax revenue to countries where the business is taking place. And so the deal kind of has, has a lot of components to it. But firstly, everyone is going to have a minimum tax rate of 15%, this kind of thing. The taxes are going to happen where the taxes can be applied where the business transaction takes place, regardless of where the company is headquartered. And the kind of enforcement mechanism, and here's where the US comes in, the enforcement mechanism is that if, let's say, the US decides not to have a 15% tax, let's say the US decides it's going to have a 10% tax, all of the other companies where let's say Facebook does business, can then levy, you're then allowed to levy additional taxes to bring the total tax payment of Meta up to as if the US was charging them 15%. So basically Facebook can't get away with paying lower taxes just because the US has lower taxes. Everyone else would still collect money. They just do that overseas. The challenge for the US is they push this deal through and then Congress has refused to implement the legislation to put in place this 15%, which means that they now need a, and they have been granted an extension until 2025, during which other countries won't be allowed to tax their companies quite as hard as they would otherwise be allowed to under this deal. We realize how tedious this stuff is, but it is immensely important because increasingly global corporations make up a huge percentage of GDP of potential tax revenue and the way that things are currently structured, it massively incentivizes kind of moving their headquarters and shifting profits to places where business isn't in place, firstly. And secondly, I think it speaks to the ability of the US to leverage global leadership. If the US is constantly in a position where when it does choose to lead multilaterally, it then doesn't follow through that is going to weaken the standing of the U.S. in the world. In this case, they'd only be hurting themselves, really. But generally speaking, that's not the case. And that is, that is all I will say about OECD and tax issues, except the OECD does do some useful things. But I'm not going to sit here and defend an organization with like a $50 billion marketing budget. They, they're very capable of putting out their own press releases. There you go, listeners. I learned something there too. And I think hopefully you guys do. Should we move on to the main story, Dimitri, lest we run yeah, out of time? Absolutely. Okay. So that brings us to the Wagner Group story. Our main story for tonight, we wanted to focus on Wagner Group, the Russian PM and C. We've just been told in the comments that actually our audience is incredibly wonky. You're doing, you're doing the thing that I've always done, which is PM and C, which is the prime minister and cabinet in Australia. Private military contractors, yeah. P... PMC. I do it too all the time. And I think the folks in, in our prime minister's de department would be very upset at you. I've met people in prime minister cabinet in Australia. I don't it's, think they would love the reputation. Having them come out you was a bit like when your door kicked in. Bureaucratic guns for hire. Yeah. You tell we've lived dangerous lives here, guys. Um, uh, Wagner Group. So, you know, there's two sides to this. And I want to make sure we get the, the Africa, uh, the African angle of this done first. Because I think it's a story that people may be less aware of. It's less in the news. So, John, do you want to give us a sense of what's happened in Mali and the broader picture of Wagner? 
yeah, hap- happily. So yeah, as you said, you'll get into the context of, of who the Wagner group is in, in the Russian and Ukrainian context, but so it's this private military con- that's very close to the Kremlin, you know, arguably pretty much directed by the Kremlin, but with enough arm length, arm's length kind of distance to sort of pretend that it's not the Russian state in these places. So the context in Africa is, you know, let, let's, let's focus on two countries, Mali and, and the Central Africa, African Republic, two countries that are, you know, they're very poor. They've been fighting insurgencies, Islamic State, g- general jihadist kind of groups for the best part of a decade, if not longer. So in Mali, for example, in 2013, the president asked the French government, the the peacekeeping forces of the French military to come in and help it fight an insurgency. The French did that for, you know, 10, 10 years or so. And they were, well, let's, let's, so 2013, the French go to Mali. In 2019, there's a coup in Mali, arguably because of these jihadist groups kind of causing instability, all this kind of stuff. The new military ruling military regime in Mali is very different to the previous president, dislikes the French, kicks them out in 2022 finally, but they had a very difficult relationship. And into that vacuum in Mali has flowed the Wagner group, Russian mercenaries to kind of fight alongside Malian troops against the insurgents. So that, that's the Mali situation very, very briefly. The Central African Republic is you know, an incredibly poor country that's got gold mines and, and some other minerals and whatnot, but it is a very, very, very poor country. There, Wagner's kind of involvement is a little bit different. It's still fighting with the government against rebel groups and, and in, more rebel groups and insurgents in, in, in the CAR, but, you know, generally non-government forces fighting alongside government forces against non-government forces. But in there's, there's this angle because of the gold mines and the rare, rare earths and the minerals that the Wagner group is really trying to secure these economic assets in the Central African Republic in exchange for saying, oh, we will help you fight the people you, you, you want to fight, but in, you will pay us in diamonds, gold, these kinds of things. And that provides a lifeline back to Russia, a way to get foreign cash, a way to get you know resources, these kinds of things. So if you, if you zoom out again, and there's other places that the Wagner Group is involved in, in Africa, but we're focusing, focusing on Mali and, and Central African Republic because they're the most kind of clear examples of what this Russian private military contracting group is doing. So in Mali, you have them kind of fighting alongside the government, clearly against rebels and insurgents to help the government and in return getting influence and being able to kind of, you know, run, run them up. And in, and in Central African Republic, the same the same thing. All of this is kind of is is sort of supporting Putin in a general sense of being able to say, "Listen, we help you guys out. We've got I've sent troops, or at least my friends who run private contracting companies. I've sent them to kind of help you out. Now you support us in the UN when when a resolution comes up. You help us, you know, what launder our money, give us minerals, all this kind of stuff." And we won't ask questions about why you want to kill people and, you know, what you want to do. You know, you will talk about this, but Wagner has horrific record of human rights abuses. It's the stories of it going into mining camps in the Central African Republic and just killing everyone, massacring everyone, because, you know, who knows if they're a miner or a rebel, just kill them all. Basic, basically, they are a, you know, a, a, a company of hired guns that operates essentially outside the law and they are acting like. And, and I guess the last thing I'll say is, you know, this might be a controversial kind of thing to say, but that to me, there's like a lot of, like a lot of similarities between the early days of the, like the British East India company kind of in how they go into a place, clearly trying to exploit it for its natural, natural resources and its economic value, providing some general help to the regional warlords or the governments or whatever it is. But really the goal is here to get what it wants out of the places. I'll leave it there. Yeah, I mean, just to, to say on Africa for a couple of points, this is a this is a, a graphic from I think two years ago by a Turkish newspaper called Daily Sabah, which basically shows the footprints of the Wagner Group across Africa, and you can see just the scale of the presence across the continent from sort of from, from Libya, from Libya, and especially Syria, where they have an absolutely horrific, just utterly horrific record 
in support of pro-government forces all the way kind of down, down south. And I think it sort of speaks to this, the scale, the scale of Wagner's, Wagner's involvement and such, and just the scale of how, how much they've operated across the, across the continent. And to the extent they have an MO, I think the idea there is that if you look at those countries, they've all gone in to support the government of the day do something it wants to do that it can't do with its own military or that it doesn't have enough ruthlessness to do with its own military or whatever it is. The idea that these countries in Africa are all suffering from, you know, instability, often, as we said, jihadists or whatever, whatever the cause of problems are, they come in and offer a no strings attached military solution where you don't, you know, the, the leader of the day doesn't have to worry too much about, you know, <laughs> rules or laws or anything like that. And they promise to solve these problems from, and in return, they are essentially taking their pound of flesh, minerals, everything else. In the, in the Ukrainian context, Wagner's really risen to prominence, especially after the Ukrainian counterattack late last year, the Russian military, which has performed pretty much abysmally across the board, found itself stymied in a number of places. And the one force, because the Russian kind of, the Russian invasion is comprised of all of these different groups. It's not a unified military the way we would picture it. There is the Russian military, but there are also PMCs like Wagner. There are the forces of the Luhansk and Donetsk republics. There's all sorts of other actors on the ground. The one force that was able to kind of make some progress and that was seen as an effective, an effective offensive force was Wagner. The Wagner group basically practices. They are, they are kind of disciplined compared to uh, the Chechen Kadyrovites fight more like little war bands. These guys are, are more professional military outfit. Um, a lot of them longer term soldiers are former that, Spetsnaz. Yeah. Like they're, they're sort of, they're Russian special forces or former Russian special forces. They sort of broadly know what they're doing, but they also... I think, I think just if, if I can interject there, I think that is 100% true until they started recruiting folks out of prisons and, yes. you know, this, this, this stuff where they were basically going, come and serve on the front lines with us or, and, you know, get your, you survive six months, you get, you're free. They were professional soldiers with, as you said, with military backgrounds. Now there's a sense that they are much more cannon fodder, but I just wanted to interject there because I think there's yeah. this changing dynamic within the group. Go, go ahead. And this is actually one of the reasons we decided to cover this story this week, because I think it was earlier today or yesterday, Wagner announced it would no longer be recruiting troops because the way it had been making advances around Bakhmut was through an offensive strategy that used kind of a human, sort of a human wave technique where groups of eight to 12, what they called assault groups, would move forward, try to suppress enemy positions with grenades or sort of underbarrel grenades, rocket propelled grenades, and sort of spotters for artillery. This resulted in absolutely catastrophic casualties. You are talking about waves of infantry, often unarmored infantry, so without even adequate, literally cannon fodder, literally cannon fodder, it marching into Ukrainian artillery, trying to make progress kind of one, one block at a time. And the initial wave of recruiting, which saw a lot of people still pulling out of prisons. And we should add, you know, when you recruit soldiers from people who are, who have like multiple licenses for multiple homicides, you're not necessarily building an ethical, an ethical civilized army to begin with. So you can imagine who these guys are, but that has completely dried up. Apparently the word has gotten around. You're not likely to make six months. You're not likely to make six days because you will be thrown into the meat grinder. And at the same time, Wagner and its leader, Prigozhin, who is known as Putin's chef because he had the catering contract for the Kremlin. I don't know if he still does, but he, like a lot of these guys, he sort of now runs a diversified conglomerate, does mining and logistics and builds things for the Sochi Olympics. He kind of, his status was really, really high um, when Wagner Group seemed to be the only ones who knew what they were doing. And now it's, and he was sort of, people were unironically talking about him as a rival to Putin, as somebody who could... Yeah. I mean, most criminologists would say that was incredibly misguided. But now there's a sense of perhaps he flew a little bit too close to the sun. The Russian military, the Ministry of Defense has turned on him somewhat, has begun to kind of 
dilute his presence there and dilute the plaudits that they give him and to control the amount of resources they're transferring to him. It's not clear that he's going to be able to sustain what Wagner is doing, but it still remains a phenomenally potent global force. And I mean, to, to tie more in the Africa sense, I mean, what, what is, you, you were talking a little bit about the attraction of hiring. Why would you go for a PMC if you are a, an, an African government rather than your own military or militaries from abroad? What's the appeal? Well, I mean, I put myself in an African dictator's shoes. I think the idea would be that the sense if you're sitting in the capital and you're, and you're presiding over a country that's very unstable, the first, first and most pressing concern of anybody in power in these kinds of places is to protect themselves with some level, as much as security in throughout the country as you can, control the regions, control the roads, the economic lifebloods of the country to the extent you possibly can. A lot of these places have militaries that are the source of instability. You know, there's coups all the time. So like there's, there's this lack of trust. Perhaps if you're a, if you're a, if you're a leader of an African country, your military works for you, but you can never be sure that they do. There are also, you know, militaries in Africa have a lot of political power. So maybe they don't want to go into areas where they're likely to be killed very easily. You know, these jihadists are no joke. They're like very, very serious groups that often win firefights with the military. So maybe, maybe your commanders are saying like, we're not going to go into that Northern part of the country or that Eastern part of the country. And then Wagner comes and prevent, presents a solution to you. Hey, we'll take care of it. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about, you know, us getting on your, getting on your case for human rights abuses, or, you know, we don't, we'll do whatever you say. What we ask in return is, and it varies from country to country access to the gold mines, access to the diamond mines, some rare earths. We want political leverage. We want cash. We want whatever it is. They all, you know, this isn't for free, but they, pre they present a short term, no strings attached, attractive solution to a leader that has probably lots and lots of problems, doesn't trust many people. So that's the attraction to it. Obviously, if you are think if you're a stable country, you're, you're not, you're thinking second, third, fourth order effects of. What does leverage does this give? What happens if I lose control of my economic assets in, you know, that part of the country? But that's not the immediate pressing concern of a lot of these really, really poor, unstable countries. It's just, how do I stay in power? How do I get as much security as I possibly can? How do I solve these problems with the least political damage? You're effectively bringing in an actor that is invested solely in your continued survival. Because the only way yeah. that they get paid or they get that sort of territorial or mining rights they want is if you remain in power. They don't have any local allegiances. They're not tied into the familial or clan systems at home. They're not part of the local politics. They don't care. I think it also makes something of a difference. It'll obviously vary country to country. For the Russians in this part of Africa, there's no colonial history. It is not like the French, where the French operating in their former colonies, where you are talking about centuries of history to flavor everything. The Russians have a lot of colonial, have a dark colonial past, but not by and large in this area. Um, so they can bring that in. And that's an important point. I, I think it's, it's kind of worth noting because it's part of the kind of soft power appeal. And unlike even the, the French foreign legion, or certainly unlike UN troops, you don't have to worry about complex rules of engagement. When will we fight? When won't they fight? Kind of these guys right. will do whatever they're paid to do. And these guys will take risks. And I will say also just the final point, just so that people don't get the wrong vision in their heads. This is not just like 12 dudes with AK-47s and dams. The Wagner group has fighter jets. It has attack helicopters. It has artillery. And they're not afraid to use it on civilian targets. So if you are an African country where, where there's been a lot of warfare and where the majority of the fighting is being done with Toyota pickup trucks, maybe machine guns and rifles, bringing in a host of special forces with access to armor and air assets is suddenly a massive force multiplier that you probably couldn't get, you couldn't easily get anywhere else. Yeah. I, 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 during the first bit of you describing what Wagner does, I was smirking because it really does sound like McKinsey with guns, right? Like the idea that they come in, they're not too worried about the idea of like, oh, we'll bend the rules when we have to. We don't, we're immoral, but we'll do a job for you. 
and our incentives are aligned with your incentives. So that's why you can trust us. Before, before we move I on from this. I don't think that's fair. I don't think Wagner will ever do as much damage as McKinsey, but. <laughs> oh boy, shots fired. Oh boy. Before we move on, I, I have one question for you and I know we're running late on time, but you have an insight into the Ukrainian Russian sphere, the mentality more than most folks I know. Is this a, is it a, is it a kind of historical trope that this is how Soviets, Russians fight, i.e. they just throw people at problems? Like you were describing the, the meat grinder and there's, you know, rushing people up the front lines that is this a, is this a uniquely Russian thing that they really view their meat? Like the World War II thing is that they just threw farmers at tanks and enough of them finally stopped the Nazis. Is that a meme or is it, what, what what's... Is, is it true? I mean, listen, it, it's kind of, it's a bit of both. I think ultimately, if they had the choice, would they, would they, would everybody prefer to be fighting like a US battle group where kind of everybody's Everyone's dead before back then, yeah. Okay. Sure, but historically over and over again, they've been in situations where that has not been an option in part for legitimate reasons apart due to incompetence, corruption, and sort of uh, yeah. their own choices. So... They are a pragmatic. They, they've chosen that. And rather than lose, they throw people in the front lines like that. Well, but I think it's also fair to say that culturally and politically, life is just incredibly cheap. Yeah. There, there's a famous quote, I can't remember from which, from which Soviet figure, when they were appraised of the, the casualties that their side had suffered to secure a victory, the person's answer was, it's cool, we'll birth more. Like, Russian mothers will create more sons is a trope of... Russian warfare and has been for a very long time. I don't think that is necessarily, you know, by it's, it's not some choice. They're not, you know, they're not doing this deliberately. It is simply has been what has worked for them because very frankly, mm -hmm. everything that isn't that requires a great deal more coordination, a far better trained armed force, a far better supply logistics train, less corruption. It's just hard. The one thing we've always had in the Soviet Union has always had was just a ton of young men and an increasingly old man to throw to throw at a front compared to its near power adversaries in in the region mm. you, know, you really have to go to to China to find populations approach Russia's on its borders mm. so I mean I, I, I think we can get into trouble when we talk about national lines but yeah, of course. But the answer is, but yes. it definitely is a, it, it's definitely a myth or at least a, a, like a trope of World War II that, you know, as the Nazis rolled highly efficient tanks over the border, the, the, the Soviets basically fought them off with pitchforks. I know that's not true, but I'm, that mentality of like, if, even if it is a national myth, it's lines blur between myth to truth to like, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. By the way, the border they rolled over was Ukrainian. So it was Ukrainian peasants with pitchforks. I think that's a distinction that's worth making in 2023. But yes, absolutely. Yeah. Kind of the, the Russian mythology is full of soldier facing German tank with absolutely nothing that can so much as dent grabs 15 grenades and dives under it and takes it with him. That is mm. an absolute trope. That kind of self-sacrificing stuff of just get it done is absolutely part of the Russian mythos. And also I think it's impossible to look would would any of our countries be able to sustain casualties at the level the Russian military has sustained them for what is no effectively way. military expedition? Like you talk, you think about the the Iraq War, the backlash. Money, war. like our Western countries will sustain politically spending trillions of dollars on on ridiculous yeah. wars, but not not casualties not, like that. Yeah, they they have lost you know, Vietnam. Vietnam War is the comparison. And the casualties are, in terms of how quickly they've been sustained. And uh, so that's, that's kind of a, a short, non-popsonicology answer. I know you wanted to no, just briefly touch on a question one of our users submitted. Yes, we, we, we've run late as per usual, but I think that was a really interesting com conversation about stuff that, you know, a, a lot of folks won't know. Okay, so very quick, we had a question from at Daniel Rembrandt on Twitter last week, actually. And he, to the extent that I can interpret his question, it was essentially this idea that in the 1800s, the northern part of China, you know, northern Manchuria, the Korean kind of 
world was given to Russia in a treaty in 1858. And it's called, I think, the, the Treaty of Amor or, or somewhere like that. But basically where China's borders now to the north in the far northeast used to be more of the Chinese world than the Russian world. It became the Russian Far East. And I think is now Amor, or however you say that, that's Amor Oblast. That area is full of rare earths, minerals, you know, all that kind of stuff that, that is becoming really, really important in, in the 21st century. And he asks, it is a he, yep, Daniel, he asks, how does the Putin doctrine affect China's claim on this Chinese region still occupied by Russia? Now, what I'm going to interpret there is he's kind of asking whether China feels like it has an ancient territorial claim to that part of Russia, like it feels like it does in the South China Sea or, or Taiwan or these places, this idea that China has unreclaimed provinces. And, and I think the, the, the short answer is, I don't, I have never really heard of a Chinese, you know, academic politician person make that claim about that part of Russia. I don't think that it is in the Chinese national mythology, or at least the communist party mythology, that that's a part of China that needs to be reunited with the, the rest of China. You know, Taiwan is a runaway province. There's the South China Sea stuff. They definitely, you hear that every day from academics that like China is complete without those. This part, even though it was, you know, given up in a treaty at the barrel of a gun, essentially in, in the 1800s, much like Hong Kong was uh, and Shanghai in, in those days, for whatever reason, you know, the, the way this is, this is the kind of way history goes, right? Like that doesn't seem to be something that's taken in China very seriously. So Short answer is the Putin doctrine doesn't really affect that, I don't think. And the Putin doctrine essentially being like, I think the Russo, Russo world, the idea that there is a Russian sphere of influence. I think that, I think China and Russia will happily just get along there. You know, there might be some, like some difficulties over sharing resources and pipelines and, and, and all this kind of stuff, but it's not going to be a geopolitical flush. I would add that if I were China and I were thinking about this from a rare earth lens, I'd be saying, actually, you know, a, a bunch of rare earths in the control of Russia, who is likely going to be unable to sell them to most of the now technological competitors. It's basically, I mean, it, you know, you can buy it all at a discount because Russia won't have other buyers. It actually, it's fine to compare to the value that they place on that alliance. And, you know, given the inability to secure it in the face of a nuclear armed adversary, I think they would they will focus in other places before they before they consider going in that direction. You know, agree. Why, why fight for what you can buy, um, effectively, or and buy at a discount? So that brings us to the end of our show for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for sending in your questions once again. Thank you so much for joining us. Please do drop us a like, comment, and subscribe. Recommend us to others who might enjoy our unique approach to tax-related entertainment and do sign up to International Intrigue's newsletter. So until next time, and with the final apology to anyone in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard we may have misgendered, have a lovely week and we will see you next week.